0: Praise team. When describing the Messiah, we see Isaiah call him the man of sorrows. If we read Isaiah 53, 3 here, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Our Savior suffered many things while on earth, and this is why... This title, Man of Sorrows, is given to him. As a man of sorrows, he experienced suffering beyond what any of us could imagine. Obviously, we think about his persecution, the slander that he faced day after day, and we we obviously think about the cross and the crucifixion, which was the most heinous of crimes against the Messiah. Yet we cannot imagine even how each day-to-day battle that he had spiritually As he walked the earth. But today we're going to come to a special section of Scripture. Uh, As far as I am aware, this is the only place in the Gospels that we see Jesus rejoice. This is the only place where we see Christ rejoicing during his earthly ministry. So today we're going to learn what makes Christ rejoice. Do do we rejoice as we think about what makes Christ rejoice today? Do we rejoice in what Christ rejoices? Or do we find joy and satisfaction in what Christ rejoices? finds joy and satisfaction. Let's go ahead and read our scripture today. We're going to read the full scripture, Luke ten seventeen through 24. If you have your Bibles turn there with me, if not, it will be right up here as well. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the this, this Scripture today, learning what makes You rejoice. Lord, You were a a man of sorrow is acquainted with grief when you walk this earth. You suffered in our place on the cross. You allowed sinful man to continue to persecute you. You didn't complain. You just kept walking the path of the cross. And as we've entered this journey to the cross, the last four to six months of your ministry, even though we still have a lot of Luke to go, this is all kind of in that last six months or so of your ministry, and we watch you walk toward the cross, we see you rejoice, and we're going to learn about why you're rejoicing today, and we know it's about salvation. Salvation is coming through through you. The kingdom of God has come through you, and we thank you, Lord, and I pray that as we we go through the scripture today, that you help us to rejoice with you, and that 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 rejoicing creates a change in our hearts. Personally, that we all are, are saved, that we have put our faith and trust in you, and secondly, that we share the gospel with others. As we enter This Christmas season, we have been given the greatest gift ever. We've been given your son. We've been given salvation through Jesus Christ. And may we share that gift with others who need to hear the saving words of the gospel. We love you. We praise you. Thank you. Open up our hearts and minds to hear your word. May you speak through me, God. I am nothing, but you are everything, God. And may you speak through me today. May you open up our our hearts and our minds to hear your word May you cast off, as as Brother Adam already talked about, just casting off all those things we may be thinking about. Maybe interactions that we had at Thanksgiving that were good, and maybe some that were not good. Uh, Maybe things we have coming up through this Christmas season, uh, maybe stresses. Uh, Christmas can be the, the most wonderful time of the year, but it can also be a stressful time as we overstretch ourselves and sometimes miss what it's all about. So God, open up our hearts and minds to hear your word, comfort us, give us peace today as we study your word my name pray. Amen. Today we're going to discuss three reasons that we should rejoice with Christ. And the first is we should rejoice with Christ because he has worked out salvation. He has worked out salvation. I'm going to read verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So these pairs of disciples have returned with joy, it shows that their ministry was fruitful. Obviously, we heard Jesus' warnings that there was oppression, there was opposition that they were going to face, but they had many wins in their ministries, and they come back to talk about it. And one of these was power over demons. And this the, the demonic opposition, can you imagine Satan and his demons seeing the journey to the cross, seeing Jesus walking toward that journey toward Jerusalem? Can you imagine the focused assault that they had at that point to try to stop this? Obviously, we know the will of God always prevails. But could you imagine what they saw at that time? But yet, they continue to see God overpower Satan time and time again. One by one, they see the power of Satan and his demons fail to stop what Jesus is doing. This victory had nothing to do with the power of those who were sent out. They were not any more special than anyone else. But it was all because of the powerful name and deity of Jesus Christ and his authority that he had given to them. The Apostle Paul gives us a great explanation of Christ's power over evil in Colossians 2.15. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them. This speaks of God's work of salvation and its culmination in the cross and how he triumphed over evil. This was soon to be confirmed and sealed by the cross. In light of this amazing news, Jesus makes a bold proclamation. Let's read verses 18 and 19 amazing verses. And it says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Talk about some fireworks. That is an amazing couple of verses. Uh, So many commentators have debated on verse 18 whether it it refers to Satan being cast out of, of heaven along with his demons, or if it referred to the spiritual battle that was occurring in front of them. I think it clearly refers to both, and I think that commentators have debated this a lot, and I think this is one of those prophetic sections of Scripture. If we look back at some of the messianic Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, we see a dual meaning. We, we see an immediate meaning, and we see a greater meaning, a bigger meaning there too. And here we see the twofold understanding of Luke 10.18. Number one, Satan's judgment. Satan's judgment. And number two, the gospel's work on earth. The first context of the Scripture is in light of Satan's judgment. Uh, many commentators have understood this to be Satan falling like lightning from heaven, to be his banishment from heaven after he rebelled against God. And, and some verses in response to this, in support of this, we find in Revelation chapter 12. We'll read a, a few of them here. Revelation 12:2 through 4 She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon, that's Satan, we'll see here in a little bit, uh, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head's Seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Uh, most commentators have understood this to be a reference of Satan and a third of the angels, which became demons that fell from heaven, that were banished from heaven. And here we see Satan wait, waiting to cause man to sin. And we see he was successful in that. That death and sin entered the world, the serpent in the garden, the great dragon. But later in the same chapter, we see that it becomes even more clear that this chapter refers back to the banishment of Satan as we read verses 7 through 9. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them where? In heaven and the great dragon satan was thrown down the that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him here we see another reference to the great dragon thrown down to earth along with his demons and and as we read that i mean that's that's great god has power over satan we see him just throw satan and his demons out of heaven and that is an amazing amazing thing but moving forward we see a contextual reference to the continued work Of the gospel in this section as well. So the followers of Christ, we get back to our scripture today in Luke 10, 18, 19. The the followers of Christ are told they have authority to tread on what? Serpents. You think that maybe has a a meaning there? Satan and his demons, serpents and scorpions, metaphors for evil. Many times the scripture refers to Satan as that serpent of old. Uh, These followers have been given power and authority over the enemy because of the gospel. And some commentators, as they read that lightning as well, they see that dual meaning and say, hey, compare this to lightning during a storm. When you see a big storm, you see a flash of lightning and a flash of lightning and a flash of lightning over and over again. And they say that those symbolize or are like time after time when a soul repents and is saved. That's one more person that was bent on going to hell and a lightning flashes and they are transformed. It's another blow to Satan and his evil empire. It shows that the path of the Christ, the path of the cross, would continue until the culmination of the crucifixion, and the gospel would continue to spread even then and until and even after that. And I think both of these interpretations have their place in this context of Scripture and the entire Bible. We see God's victory over Satan as He throws Him to earth along with the demons. We know that one day that will be a complete battle. He will be thrown to the lake of fire, and I praise God for that. It is amazing that God threw, threw Him out of heaven, but, heaven, but he will also be bound with a false prophet and the beast, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Before moving on, I think there's another important theological understanding I want us to grasp. A lot of people miss when they study the Scripture. Uh, we, we've, we've talked about this before, that many people, even that go to church every week, think that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's when he was created. I mean, probably half of people going to churches have that false theology, that false doctrine. They don't, they don't see Jesus as truly God. But we know that Jesus is eternal. He has been with the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit forever. So, so we see that he was begotten, so he took on human flesh in Bethlehem. But he had existed forever. And here we see Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like heaven. So we're seeing the preeminence of Christ, that even before when Satan is thrown down, well before he is born on earth, he sees God's judgment. He, he's a part of God's judgment there we see that he is preexistent, that he is eternal. And I just want to go through a few more verses so this could be confirmed in your minds that no one at this church believes that. That, that when they do a, 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 some kind of study and they say, did Jesus, was he born and created in Bethlehem? You'll say, no, he has always been. Because that is a huge doctrine. That is a huge false doctrine that is taught by some people. And that, that, that is off the rails. And so here we see Colossians 1, 15 through 16 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that means preeminent. So if people misunderstand that, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses misunderstand that, the firstborn means preeminent. He's above all. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So if by him all things were created, he wasn't created. He is; it, They were all created through him. It says, whether it dom- thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. See, all things were created by and through Christ. Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also he created the world. Jesus can't be created in Bethlehem and be through him create the world. Again John 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what? was God. Jesus is God. He is pre-existent, he is preeminent, he is eternal along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So I pray that that you understand that, that you grasp that well, and so you're able to to fight that false teaching that is prevailing in our world. So we we should rejoice with Christ because he has worked out salvation and continues to even work out salvation today. And next we see number two, we should rejoice with Christ because our salvation has been written. Our salvation has been written. Let me read verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. So sections of scripture like this are encouraging. You know, we, we see evil defeated. And, you know, in a world when we look around and we see Satan doing some really gnarly things, we see some bad things all around us. So we, we come to this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We're like, yes, that's awesome. I love this. This is great. Jesus is greater than Satan. God is greater than Satan. He throws him down. Then we look around and it can be really, really depressing when we look around. But what we can glory a lot in that, of God's power over Satan, and, and I get that. We, we see Jude 9, that, that it is a battle, that Satan is powerful, and this power over Satan, from, from, uh, over Satan that God has is impressive. This is what, but even when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael respects Satan, pa- Satan's power here, so we see God just throw him down. It shows God's power. But, but Jesus says here, it's, it's not the power over evil. That we need to rejoice in and glory in. Uh, We should, I mean, that is great that God has power over evil. That's completely true. But our salvation is what should bring us true joy. It is even greater than that. As I was talking to my mentor, Pastor Kenny Stidham, uh, we started talking about this scripture and I wanted to make sure I was handling those last couple of verses correctly with the dual meaning and uh, going over that. And and he, he says something that really struck me here. He said, It takes more power to get men into heaven than Satan out of heaven. Let me say that again. It takes more power to get men into heaven than Satan out of heaven. In other words, it's harder to take a corrupted and dead soul, a a, a soul destined for hell, it's harder to take that, resurrect it, and save a a lost soul than it was to banish Satan from heaven. Jesus was telling his fathers that, that we should not glory in the lesser thing, the power over evil, over the greater thing, God's ability to regenerate a dead soul, to resurrect someone who is dead in their sins and make them new again through the gospel. That is an amazing work that, that God does that is even greater than his victory over Satan throwing him onto earth. We should glory in the fact that God is saving souls. It, we, we should definitely hold true to the fact that, that, our, that evil will not triumph over good. But even more so, we should, we should glory that there are souls on the path of destruction, on the path of hell, that God can lift up, reveal himself, and save. How amazing is that? You know, sometimes we get so focused on this spiritual battle, this battle, this battle, that we miss the fact that there are souls at stake, that there are souls that are doomed for destruction right now. And we glory when someone is saved, when someone goes from death to life. That's the biggest miracle we could ever imagine. It's the dry bones being brought to life. And this first place we need to celebrate and rejoice is in our own salvation. I pray that everyone here is saved, that they can rejoice and say, God, thank you for saving me. I do thank you for helping me battle temptation, that, that I know that you are stronger than evil, that you'll help me through this. And those are great things, but I glory and I rejoice in what you rejoice in, and that's saving souls. And I glory and rejoice in saving my soul. And if you've not been able to rejoice in that, you've not been able to rejoice with Christ with that, I pray that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is so good. He, he died on the cross some 2,000 years ago after being born, as we're going to talk about, throughout the, through the Christmas season. He lived a sinless life, was, was crucified on the cross, rose three days later, and is now at the right hand of the Father. And if you will repent or turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, you can rejoice with Christ in that. For we that are saved, we can rejoice that he has saved our soul. We can rejoice in that, which is much greater than even Satan being thrown from heaven. But if you are in Christ, you can rejoice because your name is written. Wow. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Man, that's a beautiful verse, isn't it? If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you persevere, you are a true believer who perseveres to the end. That is the mark of a true believer. He doesn't lose true believers. There are many that give him a head nod, maybe have a a walk forward, maybe have a a camp experience, a VBS experience, an emotional experience at some point, and then they fall away. They were never truly his. No one plucks them out of the the Father's hand, but for those who are true believers, and you are truly saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says you have assurance. It's the most sure thing in the entire world that your name will not be blotted out from the book of life. Praise God for that. May we rejoice in this wonderful promise of Christ that our name, and I pray that everyone here's name is written in the book of life. And lastly, number three, we should rejoice with Christ because he is still willing to save. He is still willing to save. How amazing is that? That he he puts up with us. When you look around this world, wouldn't you've lost patience a long time ago? You know, you just said I, I'm done with this. Scrap it. I mean, you know, he did that once with the flood. I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't just said, "Okay, we're done." And he just continues to be patient. So much more patient than us. People talk about God being judgmental and and, and unloving. It's like, man, you know. I, I know he's going to bring his wrath. It will come at one point, but can you, can you imagine the great patience of God as he sees the heinous crimes on our earth and continues to allow souls to be saved? Each day, more people come to Christ and their, their eternal trajectory goes from, from death to life. And he gives that one more day for one more soul, 10 more souls, 1,000 more souls. How many people get saved in a given day? And may we be his hands and feet and not make that mercy useless. You know, not make that mercy a waste of his time, but it's only going to change. A soul trajectory is only going to change if they hear the word of God and that God reveals himself to them. Reading verse 21, here we see Jesus rejoice. And that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. As I referenced, the beginning of our message today, this is the only time that I'm aware of that we see Jesus rejoice while walking on earth. This man of sorrows rejoices. And this Greek word for rejoice is actually agaleio, which means to rejoice greatly, rejoice exceedingly, or to be overjoyed. It's not even just a little rejoice. It's a big rejoice. So not only do we see him joyful, but we see him exceedingly joyful. So what is it that gets our Lord and Savior overjoyed while he's on earth, while he walks on earth? It's that these things... These hidden things have been revealed in these last, and, and, and to the least of these, namely the way of salvation. How amazing is that? So, so, so what is it that gets him? It, it is the way of salvation. He refers to the least of these as little children. This Greek word for little children can even mean infants, so he's talking about small people. And, it, and we know that this is a metaphor for, for the least of these, for those that were outcasts, those that were uneducated, those would, that would have been the least likely to be picked on the dodgeball team. You know, the, 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 those that were least likely to be picked on the, the debate team. The least likely to be picked as a Pharisee or the Sadducee. These were the outcasts. And he's talking about, if you remember, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about children in Jewish times and how children were, they, people took pride in having children, but they didn't really like them that much. They kind of cast them off. They, they were like, hey, don't bother us. They, they can be seen but not heard. Stay out of there. And so Jesus is, in essence, saying these are those people, the people that nobody really wants to see, nobody really wants. And that's who he is choosing. The Father is choosing to reveal salvation to the ones that no one else would pick, no one else would think about. And as I really thought about this, like Jesus is rejoicing that the rejects are being chosen. And I just love that. Like, Jesus is like the, the, the underdogs, the people that nobody cared about. Jesus is rejoicing that the Father has chosen to reveal the truth of God, the way of salvation, to the least of these. Not to the elites, but to the lowly. We had a pastor's conference earlier this month at the West Virginia Convention of Southern Baptists. We went to it um, Chief Logan State Park, and we had a few outside speakers come in. One was Dr. Jamie Dew, who is the president of New Orleans Theological, Baptist Theological Seminary, um, one of the youngest uh, presidents that has ever been, I think, in, in, in Southern Baptist seminaries, but he brought a tough message. Wow. As, as he spoke, it was, um, as, as Adam would say, it may, may, may remind, remind you of my, my preaching. Adam always laughs. He's like, yeah, you know, you kind of leave here sometimes feeling like you got uppercutted, um, hopefully you feel the Holy Spirit balm after that. That's my, that's my goal. But as he preached this, I, I thought this not only applied to us as pastors, but it applies to all of us as believers. And he, he, he read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26 through 31, which I want to read for us as well, because I think it just parallels beautifully with this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth If you're reading this difficult passage, that just pretty much says not many of you were anything, pretty much. Actually, it says that we were, we were bad, we were useless, we were not really anything. And we think about our, our verse in Luke where Jesus says he's rejoicing in the fact that God chose the rejects, the least of these. I want to ask a, a simple yet difficult question to you. I think it's an, a really important question for us to ask. Why did God pick you? Out of all the people in the world, why did God choose to reveal himself to you? Why did he save your soul? Assuming you are saved, I pray that you are. Let that sit for a moment as you answer that question in your head and your heart. Why did God pick you? Well, some of us in our flesh may start to think about some qualities that we have that make us more worthy than maybe our neighbor. Well, it's probably because I'm good at this, or I have this talent, or I have this ability. Our flesh naturally wants to think about what we brought to the table with us to salvation. However, if your mind goes to reasons supporting why you were a good choice by God, you are in grave danger, my friends. Because we see in the scriptures, both in Luke 10, 21 and 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, that God did not choose you because of who you are. No, actually, it's more likely that God chose you because of everything that you are not. That's humbling, isn't it, my friends? God didn't choose you because of your abilities. I had a bad stutter. I had speech therapy when I was growing up, and the fact that I stand up here and preach. God did not choose me because I was a great orator. God does not choose you because you're the strongest or the fastest or the best-looking or because you had anything to bring to the table with you when you were saved. You brought nothing, actually, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, "Brought nothing for by grace are you you're, are you saved through faith not by works so that no man can boast." And here we saw even in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, let the one who boasts boast in what their abilities, how great that they are, their talents, their ability to speak, their ability to share the gospel, their ability to be charismatic, their their natural good heart that they have. No. No, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. My friends, we are the foolish. We are the weak. We are the low, the despised, the rejected, the little children, the ones that no one wants to hear or see. And until you see yourself that way, until you see yourself as a little child, humbly asking your Father to help you, you will never be used by Christ the way he wishes to use you, because your pride will continue to impede your progress. My friends, listen to that again. Your pride will continue to impede your progress. God can use the rejects, and he does choose to use the rejects. He just did. The, the 70 or 72 that he just sent out, he just used them to trample all over the enemy, to cast out demons, to see souls turn toward Jesus Christ. He uses rejects. He's done it. You look through the Bible, many of the people, David, David's this short little dude that didn't even come out when Samuel comes by. Samuel's like, hey, I want to see all your sons, Jesse, and Jesse doesn't even let him come. He's like, hey, he's out with the sheep. But it was the least of these that God chose to lead Israel after Saul, the, the tallest guy, head taller than everybody else, the strongest guy, the best looking guy, is hiding behind the baggage when he gets chosen. And God shows that it's not because of our natural abilities. He was a, a failure as king. But David, man, after God's been hard, is the least of these. And as, as I preach this, as I relay this, it seems pretty harsh at first glance. It's kind of a, a, not a real popular message. If you go to most churches and you hear a pastor speak, he's going to usually tell you how great you are and how God wants you to be happy and wealthy, and, and you're just you're amazing, and just go get him. You, you got this, you can do whatever. And this message is exactly opposite than that. This is pretty much, you're pretty much a loser. You don't really have any chance or hope in your own. I know that sounds awful, but it's true. That's where our flesh is. We bring nothing to the table. But you know what? They're so liberating. You know, the whole self-confidence movement, self-consciousness, you know, self-esteem, that whole movement of, of esteeming yourself seems so good, doesn't it? It sounds great. You know, just keep telling, you're gonna be good. You're good enough. You can do anything you want to do. Just put your mind to it. But how many of you all have thought have that and then tried out for that team and failed? But you knew you could do it, but you know, your five foot four frame didn't really fit on the basketball team in high school. You know, but 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 you know, your mom told you you can do whatever you want to do, your grandma told you you can do whatever you want to do, you just put your mind to it. Well, reality sometimes sets in. And if you can't jump and you're five foot three, five foot four, you're probably not gonna make the high school basketball team because you know, God, he gives gifts us in what he wants us to do, not what we want to do. And there, it's so liberating to hear that, that no, you can't do whatever you want to do. You can put your mind to do whatever you want to, and you may fail, you fall flat on your face, but you can do whatever God has called you to do. He will equip you to do it, and he will do amazing things. And it's so liberating because it doesn't rely on your natural abilities or talents. Me getting up here and preaching, I was not naturally gifted to be able to speak at all. But God gifted me with that ability. And there's a lot better than me. I'll be honest. I need to stay humble on that. There's a lot of guys that are better than me. But God takes the least. The kid that can't say S's or Z's or thuh or anything like that. I I can't remember how many things I couldn't say when I was a kid. And now I speak for the Lord. He takes what the least of these because he wants to show how he can use the rejects. He can because he gets more glory that way, right? If God takes someone that already has everything and exalts them, what's gonna happen? Oh yeah, I'm great. Look at what I've done for you, God. Look at what I bring to the table. But when he brings somebody that doesn't really bring to the table and he does amazing things through them, he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. And may he always get all the glory in our lives. May we see ourselves truthfully that we didn't really bring anything to the table. We had nothing to offer, but yet he saved us anyway. And through that, everything he's going to call us to do, everywhere he's going to call us to go, he will equip us and give us the ability to do what he wants us to do. No, you can't be whatever you want to be. You can't do whatever you want to do, but you can do you can accomplish whatever Christ calls you to accomplish. Even other people say there's no way you can do it. Even in a world that says you can do whatever you want to do, a lot of times there's so certain things, no, you you can't do that. Like that. And that's that's when God steps in and, and, and does that amazing work through those who are willing to humble themselves before him. One more important theological understanding I want us to, to get before moving forward is found in verse 21. It says here, in that same hour, oh here we go. In that same hour, look at what's under, underlined up here. In the same hour he rejoiced, meaning Jesus, in the what? Holy Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father. What do you see there? The Trinity, three and one, all rejoicing in what? salvation of lost souls. What makes Christ rejoice? Salvation makes him rejoice. The kingdom of God had come, and this brings joy to the Godhead, three in one. Moving forward, we see that Jesus continues his joy as he focuses on his pivotal role in the salvation of lost souls. Verse 22 here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, the only, only person that knows God is, is God. God knows God. Jesus continues his outspoken prayer in the presence of his disciples to make this incredibly bold statement. No one knows the Father except the Son, and who, whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. Here we see the exclusivity of the gospel taught again. Jesus is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. We see at the beginning of this verse that everything has been, all things have been given to the Son. And what what does this accomplish? All knowledge, all authority, all power, and the power of salvation. And Jesus is rejoicing in his role to play in the plan of salvation. He takes the central role of salvation. And I just find it very ironic that he's rejoicing in what's coming. He's rejoicing in the cross and his journey to the cross, and his role in salvation. Not many of us here would rejoice knowing we were going to the cross, knowing that we would be tortured. But my friends, Christ rejoiced at seeing our day even today, because he looked past the cross and his victory over sin and death. He finds exceeding joy when someone goes from death to life and is resurrected. We're told even the angels in heaven rejoice with him as well when a soul is saved in Luke 15.10. But before going to our last couple of verses, I want to ask an important question. We talked about how no one can know the Father unless the Son reveals him to him. Is Jesus revealing himself to you today? Have you never been born again? You've never really repented of your sins, turned from your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I pray that today is that day of salvation for you. Maybe you had an experience whenever you were younger. You went forward to VBS or you went forward to something. But, you know, when you look back at your life, you've not lived for Christ. You've given the head nod, but you haven't been all in. Well, I pray that Jesus and his angels can rejoice at the salvation of another soul that goes from death to life. Give Jesus joy and let him celebrate. And may you rejoice with him in 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 the saving of another soul going from death to life. Respond to that free gift, my friends, if that is you. There is no more important decision for you to make. Jesus ends the section with the following two verses in verses 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He then gathers his disciples and lets them know how big what they're seeing is. This is not just your run in the mill day that they've had not the run-of-mill few days or weeks or however long this lasted. This is huge. Consider the prophets of old who wrote about such things. Consider Isaiah who wrote what we started, started this off with, a man of sorrows, that looked forward to the coming Messiah but never got to hear him, never got to see him while he was on earth. Think about King David as he writes Messianic Psalms and points to the one to come, that this, the son of David that would come take away the sins of the world. These 12 apostles are able to see so much in such a short time. And church, blessed are you as you read these words. These words that the prophets of long ago and the kings of long ago would have done anything to hear, to be able to read, to know the fruition of what was coming. You've heard the power of God over the enemy of our souls, namely Satan. You've heard about the banishment of Satan from heaven and heard about the ultimate defeat of Satan through the cross, through the judgment to come. May we rejoice with Christ as we consider that he continues to save souls even today. And may we go and proclaim the way of salvation to the nations. As we come to a close, we've seen a really exciting section of Scripture. Uh, We've seen Christ rejoice on earth the only time that I'm aware of that he does that. But may we rejoice with Christ as we consider his work on the cross his saving of our own souls, as we think about that. And we continue rejoicing with him as we share the gospel with a world that needs to hear, that needs to be saved. So what makes Christ rejoice? The will of God being accomplished through the saving of souls by his work on the cross. That's what makes him rejoice. And brothers and sisters, may we also rejoice with Christ.